Hello, Internet, and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's new podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. My name is Peter Hamby, a founding partner here at Puck. Welcome to the first episode of The Powers That Be. Every week, we'll be offering you unique access into the elite conversation of this rarefied world through our incredible team of journalists and insiders. Today, we have a fantastic show. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the backstage drama behind this week's Emmy Awards. Then, Tina Nguyen will drop by to discuss what Trump is planning in 2024, if anything. And finally, our newest colleague, Dylan Byers, will join me to offer some plum gossip about the media, maybe my favorite topic. Thanks for being here. Let's jump right into the powers that be with Matt, who's going to dig into Hollywood with us and tell us who won the week in Hollywood, which everyone wants to know. But first, Matt, we both live in Los Angeles, California, USA. We just had a big election here, a recall election. And it was tough going for Gavin Newsom, the governor, the Democrat, for a while there, even a month ago. He might have lost, <laughs> at least if you talk to Democrats or at least had a, a bit of a scare. But he won in blowout fashion on Tuesday night, 63 to 33 or something like that. It was a total wipeout. Um, he was able to successfully turn this race into a referendum on Larry Elder, conservative talk show host who he and he Donald said, Trump and Donald Trump by tying him to Trump, saying that he would roll back vaccine mask mandates, you know, take us back. And Newsom really saved himself by turning this into a campaign about trust the science. We, we're doing the right thing in terms of covid which is one reason that Newsom was was in trouble because of COVID and his dinner at the French Laundry uh, last November. But, you know, living living here in California, Matt, I was a little uh, peeved at times. I was laughing at times watching the national D.C. punditry on Twitter and on the cable networks last night who showed up at the last minute to deliver their almighty takes about why this matters nationally. What was your opinion of the coverage nationally of our little local race here? Uh, well, I didn't watch that much of it because I was busy celebrating with dinner at the French Laundry. Um, it was delicious. Thank you. Uh, thank you for mentioning them. I'm sure they're appreciating all the nice plugs. Now, um, I, I mean, this is like a shake my head moment for anyone who actually lives in California and pays attention to this stuff. I mean, the people on CNN talking about how this is the roadmap for Democrats nationally and how this is, you know, Newsom's speech that he's going to use and every... In uh, every opportunity he can to run for president. It's like, no, this was a very specific California issue. The Republicans saw an opening. They said, okay, there is widespread discontent at these closures from COVID. For as many people that are happy about saving extra lives, there's a lot of people who have been put out of work, whose kids can't go to school, who are really discontented in a way that most people in California aren't because they don't pay attention to politics for the most part here. And it was an opportunity. They got it on the ballot. A judge let them put it on the ballot and they had an opportunity. I never thought it would go anywhere. Um, I know a lot of people here who saw those polls that showed that it was a, a dead heat and were like, what? You know, most people in California, like I said, don't pay attention to politics until the very last second. So of course, these Republicans who have been riled up by all of the closures and had, uh, by the opportunity to make a change we're saying, yeah, we're going to vote for it. And everybody else was like, what? Recall? What's going on? Finally, when the ads started running 
when Newsom got out there, when people like Kamala and Biden showed up and reminded people that there was an election going on, two to one Democrats in California. Of course, they showed up. Of course, this went down. Yeah, I mean, the, the gravity eventually took hold. Democrats outnumber registered Republicans here two to one. And if you want to make a national lesson out of it, it, it feels sort of short term. In other words, Newsom uh, a month ago, two months ago over the summer, polls among likely voters showed it tight. Newsom doesn't really have much of a defined brand other than being kind of, you know, the handsome governor. Everyone knows he's generally progressive and a Democrat. He has a D next to his name, and that's why he won by a landslide in 2018 in a Democratic state. And he really saved himself by doing what you said, which is making sort of low information Democratic voters aware of the fact that there simply was an election, getting people to send their ballots back in in the mail. But two, really drilling down on the pandemic stuff with Elder saying he's going to take us back. He's going to roll back masks rules and school stuff. And that could be helpful nationally for Democrats in the short term. Like Biden obviously came out at the White House last week and thinks he's on the right side of popular opinion by implementing his, you know, employee based vaccine mandate and and testing mandate. But, you know, is this going to be the thing that people vote on in the midterms in November of 2022? Like, no, things change, you know. Uh, And so, you know, this election was about a weird group of Trumpy anti-vaxxer sort of Republicans who started this recall effort before the lockdown stuff. Then it became about the lockdowns. Then it became about Larry Elder. And, you know, it was about Gavin Newsom. And then it was about Republicans. The end. It's just like hard to extrapolate how this maps onto, you know, a race in Texas or Ohio or, you know, the presidential race next time. Or anything to do with the swing voters that will likely determine the next presidential election. I mean, California is known as being a blue as blue state, but you and I have both been to parts of the state where it's absolutely not that. I mean, parts of California are redder than red. If you go to the Central Valley, if you go to Northern California, places that are rural, that have people that are deeply, deeply conservative and skeptical of the government, Those are the people that were behind this recall. And those are the people that were coming out in droves to sign the petitions to get it on the ballot in the first place and have been so frustrated by some of the vaccine and pandemic response strategies that Newsom has put into place largely for the major cities, which have nothing to do with the rural areas in many ways. So, you know, this was this is California being California, I think. And I don't know what the lesson is for the larger uh, electorate. To be clear, I do think that, again, this is sort of unique to Newsom in California. There were some Biden voters out there and maybe some independents who are frustrated with, you know, discrete issues in their cities and communities. Uh, You know, I'm in Venice where homelessness is a big issue. Right. And even. Even Democrats here are frustrated with it. You know, oh, I've around- talked to many, many wealthy West Side L.A. people who are very frustrated by the housing issue, by the homelessness issue. There are absolutely serious things that are going on where in a state that is governed exclusively by Democrats, the Democrats have to own that. They can't say that their hands are tied on these issues because they own all the branches. And if they're yes. not doing anything on it, the voters are going to notice. And Newsom's Newsom, I, I wrote about this in a piece about Newsom for Puck uh, about a month ago when he was in more serious trouble. But I think 
to the Newsom campaign's credit, they were able to persuade those voters who might have been on the fence because of, you know, if you're a small business owner, the lockdown measures have been sort of scatterbrained, or if you care about homelessness. He was able to reach those Democrats and say, okay, but like, here's the other option. And I think he made people who might have considered supporting the recall think twice about it and pull the lever for him. Now, moving forward, you know, the question for Newsom is next year, like, does he view this as a victory, a huge victory and a mandate of sorts running for his reelection campaign next year? Or is he in trouble? Will he get primaried by another Democrat who saw those vulnerabilities and wants to exploit them? I, I don't see him getting primaried. Yeah. But th- there's one thing that that is an interesting takeaway from this recall. And there are lessons for the rest of the country, I think, and it's building on what happened in 2020, is if you look at the numbers among Latino men, the numbers for Newsom when he was elected were very high among Latino men. The numbers, at least the preliminary numbers on the recall, he had much less support among Latino men. And it is another data point pointing to the abandonment of Latino men from the Democratic Party that we saw in some areas with Trump, uh, where they supported him a lot more than they did in 2016. So if there is a lesson to be learned both for Newsom and for other Democrats, it's you cannot take Latinos in general and especially Latino men for granted. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And and culturally, I think the Trump era Republican Party has found a way to to appeal to them. Um, and and that's important. Well, and if you look at the if you look at the impact of the shutdowns during the pandemic, they were largely on working class people whose jobs went away or their families were touched by this or, you know, it wasn't the upper class people on L.A.'s West Side or in San Francisco. They 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 were okay. It was people who are more working class. And that impacts how you vote. You know, there was an article in the L.A. Times last week about a store owner who was absolutely decimated by the pandemic shutdowns and it impacted his willingness to vote for the recall. Yeah, I mean, I I spoke to an organizer for the janitors union here in Los Angeles County and he was saying his people are were upset that, you know, the rich white folks on the west side got to take their their kids out of school and do these little learning pods with teachers they hired. Meanwhile, you know, their kids had to stay at home and were not logging into class at certain points during the pandemic last year. Like we live in Los Angeles. I know it's different in other parts of the state, but a lot of the pandemic economic slowdown, the shutdowns fell on the backs of black and brown people and working people. And, you know, that's not a new story, but I think it definitely played out in, in, in this recall in a way that Democrats in the state can look to. Matt, uh, your expertise here in Hollywood uh, is Hollywood. Um, the Emmys are coming up on Sunday, and I was looking through the nominees earlier because, you know, I don't watch the word shows as much as I used to. And I'm just like struck how many of the nominees now are, are like from these big streaming platforms, Netflix, Apple, HBO Max, Disney Plus. And then like Blackish is in there from one of the traditional broadcast networks. And like This Is Us from NBC is in there like it, it just feels like this is now a pissing match between these big streaming tech companies now and less about the traditional studios and, and broadcast networks. Oh, that, that, and that's been true for a few years now. It really is a, uh, a chance for these streaming companies that have gotten into the content game over the past few years to 
show how great they are and to court talent and to, you know, put up on their service, watch this show because it's a five-time Emmy winner. That, that is really the only interesting narrative here. I mean, the Emmys have been losing viewership for years. You know, you're not the only one that doesn't watch these shows anymore. Most people don't. Uh, there's a mix of, you know, we don't need award shows to see celebrities anymore. You know, half the country is turned off by the politics that comes from the stage when people win. And it's just not a thing that, that permeates the culture in a way that these things used to. But having said that, the awards are arguably more important to the industry because we are in a time of huge competition amongst services to generate subscribers, generate the best talent. And if you are Apple or Netflix or Amazon uh, or HBO Max and you're trying to distinguish your streaming service from all the others, not a bad thing to say that you have the most Emmy nominations. Tim Cook, when Tim Cook did his Apple presentation on Tuesday, first thing he did was congratulate Apple TV Plus on all the nominations, especially for Ted Lasso, which is their breakout show and will likely win the comedy series Emmy on Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I, w- I was reading an interview with um, Cedric the Entertainer, who is hosting this year, and it was in the New York Times. And he said actually something that I've been I've had a theory about about these these award shows, which is that. The ratings aren't just down because we have access to celebrities all the time anyway, and they're just not these like massive cultural events anymore. People have their attention is drawn all over the place. Part of it is that the the shows themselves feel like they are for these sort of prestige shows like Succession or in the case of the Oscars, like Nomadland and Minari, which are, to be clear, like fantastic films and 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 great shows are nominated but they don't feel like they appeal to mass culture in a way it's and cedric sort of made the point that he wants to try to bridge the kind of prestige people who watch these like award-winning hbo max shows with the kind of people who love to watch the big bang theory when it was on broadcast is that even possible <laughs> i i don't know if that's possible because you know the, the fracturization of media has just completely taken hold and you know there was a time 20 30 years ago where the big emmy shows were watched by 20 30 million people if you think about er or frazier or even in the in the 2000s when the sopranos was winning you know that was a show that was a total game changer for that network these days, you know, if you look at it, if you look at these shows that win things like Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and things like Succession, which have huge followings, I am a big Succession fan. That is not a mainstream show that everybody can rally behind. And I think it really has taken a hit on these shows because on the on the award shows, because no one wants to sit and watch a two hour commercial for shows that you're never you've never heard of right and you're never going to watch yeah no totally i mean i, I again i love some of these shows the like the kaminsky method uh lovecraft country I'm hacks right i loved hacks but but ask average person on the street if they've heard of hacks they've never heard of it totally i mean this is like a like the the version of twitter isn't real life in politics it's like some of these these shows and and films are just like completely foreign to a lot of normies out there, even though they dominate the national 
elite sort of media conversation and the Hollywood conversation. But if you are HBO Max and you can slap an Emmy winner on Hacks and put it on your service, more people are going to be willing to check that out. And there's evidence that there is a bump on these services when something wins an Oscar and Emmy. I talked. Oh, to, is that right? Oh, absolutely. When I, I mean, first of all, this goes back 70 years where if a movie would win an Oscar, it would go through the roof at the box office. So it happens on streaming services. Now, I talked to people at Hulu about Nomadland, and that's a movie that not many people saw. But when it won Best Picture at the Oscars, they saw a huge spike on Hulu for Nomadland. And the same could be said for Ted Lasso. They Apple strategically timed the release of season two to coincide with Emmy voting for season one. And then when it got all these nominations, it's on the air. So people are more willing to check it out. And, you know, that's a that's a strategy the networks and, and outlets have used forever. And it still works. People do pay attention if you show them that something is award worthy and in a sea of content where no one can make a choice and you're stuck you know, how many times have you turned on Netflix and you spend 15 minutes just scrolling, trying to figure out what you want to watch? You are more likely to click on something that has Emmy Award winner next to it. Right, right, right. That makes sense. That's like in uh, the Des Moines Register endorsement in the, in the presidential primaries. Like no one's actually reading the actual endorsement, but you slap it in your mail. You slap it on the TV ads and it, it lends it like an air of seriousness. Right. And more importantly, if you are HBO and HBO Max, which had the most nominations this year at 130. You put that in every single piece of branding you have from your promotion on your site to your ads around town to your commercial, everything has that. And it got so bad this year that HBO and Netflix actually had a behind the scenes fight over who could claim to have the most nominations, which sounds like the saddest dick measuring contest you've ever heard. But it actually was a big thing because they wanted to be able to say we are the most nominated outlet. And because HBO and HBO Max combined their nominations together, because everything airs on HBO Max, but some shows are only HBO Max. Some are on the HBO Linear channel and also on HBO Max. They combined them all. The TV Academy said fine. And they beat Netflix by one nomination. HBO had 130. Netflix had 129. So, of course, Netflix privately complained, said you shouldn't combine them all. And the TV Academy was like, well, what are you talking about? They asked us, we did it. And that's that shows you the stakes here because Netflix so badly wanted to be able to say they had the most nominations of any outlet. Is that because Netflix still views themselves as an insurgent, even though, you know, they're obviously a, you know, central platform and gathering place for Americans in front of their televisions these days? I, I think so a little bit. I also think that it is it is part of their branding. I mean, if you look at the bread and butter of Netflix, it's not this Emmy programming. They are a down the middle network reruns and movies and broad reality shows now. They are, you know, I've written this in the past. They are, they're trying to be CBS. They're not trying to be HBO. However, they want to be in the business of recruiting the best talent. And the talent cares about prestige. If Netflix is considered a prestigious outlet, you're going to want to work there. And the way you're considered a prestigious outlet is if you win awards. So, you know, and it matters to consumers as well. They've seen bumps for shows and movies that have awards around them. And they've picked up movies in particular just because they think there are awards potential. I mean, their big Oscar movie a couple of years ago was Roma, which 
was a black and white Spanish language, small art house drama that they promoted the heck out of. And it wasn't because the average viewer of Netflix really wants to see a black and white Spanish language drama like that. It was because they knew that they could get Oscar nominations and use that for their branding. And they did. Before we get to who on the week, Matt, some news this week, Jim Giannopoulos is leaving Paramount as chairman and CEO. What does that mean? This is an interesting one because Paramount is one of the original Hollywood studios. It's over 100 years old. It's the only Hollywood studio that is still based in physical Hollywood. The others are oh, wow. in the others are in Burbank, Culver City, you know, West LA. And the ownership is the Redstone family. They own a company called Viacom CBS. They have owned the Paramount Studio since the 90s. And the thinking there was that Paramount has really withered over the past 10 to 15 years. There's all sorts of reasons. Bad management. They haven't bought things. Disney in particular has just become gigantic. Uh, You know, the original Marvel deal to distribute Marvel movies was actually at Paramount, not Disney. And then Disney swoops in from underneath and buys Marvel outright and takes that back. Same with Indiana Jones. Indiana Jones is a Lucasfilm property. The distribution is at Paramount. Disney comes in, swoops in, buys Lucasfilm. Now the next Indiana Jones is going to be a, uh, a Disney movie. So Paramount has really been outdone over the past few years. And they had this guy running it for, for five years who really tried to restart their big theatrical franchise movies. They're doing a new Top Gun with, with Tom Cruise. They've got Mission Impossible. They've done you know efforts to do things like Sonic the Hedgehog and G.I. Joe and some of these big theatrical franchises. And that's not the strategy anymore. They fired him because they want movies that will serve their streaming service. And that is a very different proposition than making movies for theatrical distribution. I mean, the pandemic has really accelerated this shift from theaters to streaming services. And Paramount has one. Paramount Plus used to be called CBSL Access. It's not very good. Doesn't have great content. It's got a lot of reruns of old MTV shows that they're they're uh, you know that they that they have things like Survivor from CBS and The Challenge, but they don't have a lot of this premium you know stuff that wins Emmys or that draws a big audience. So they want to make more content just for the streaming service and put some of these movies exclusively or day and date on the streaming service. So they brought in the head of Nickelodeon to run the film studio and transition it from old school Hollywood studio to a, essentially a content farm for streaming. Ugh. Okay. Yeah, there was a lot, there was a lot there, but you know, but the, but the bottom line just is Just say the word content. We're talking about like movies and film and naming these great names. And then you just say like content farm and it's yeah, like, it just sounds grim. Well, they're, they're going after volume. I mean, if you look at the yeah. garbage that's on Netflix or the garbage that's on Amazon, like most of this stuff, is not very good. It's it's cheap, and it's made for a kind of disposable streaming audience where you click in and click out. You're doing other things, you know, and it's not made to hold your attention for two hours in a in a movie theater. There are exceptions, of course, and Netflix makes some great stuff. Amazon too, but a lot of it is just not that good. And Paramount is now pursuing that strategy. They'll probably have a lot more kids content. They'll have, you know, knockoffs and, and spinoffs of existing franchises. You know, it's it does say something about the direction we're heading in terms of, of, of what the dominant content is going to be in film and television. 
My prediction is they take a quiet place, which is I actually really like that movie, and I didn't I haven't seen the sequel yet, and just like make it into like a Walking Dead spinoff series. Like they could do that. Totally. That. The, the especially the sequel is good, and it opens up the world a little bit more. Where you know you could you could definitely do that. There's all sorts of things that they're probably going to do with some of their existing franchises. You know, there if this Top Gun movie is successful, maybe you make a Top Gun TV show. Yeah, they could make it with the the Tom Cruise deep fake that goes viral every few days. That's cheap. They could <laughs> do that with the content farm. About that, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, if you, yeah no, if, no. if you pay him enough money, he could probably <laughs> sign off on it. But you know, there's a lot of good old Paramount movies that could could be redone. Um, a lot of the you know a lot of the stuff that is in the library they haven't really explored. Um, that's what they're going to focus on. All right, thanks, Matt. Last thing before I let you go this week: who won? Who won this week in Hollywood? First week after Labor Day. This may not seem groundbreaking, but it sort of is. My, my pick for who won the week is Roger Goodell, who is not even a Hollywood person. He's the commissioner of the NFL. And if you look at the numbers for the first week of NFL broadcasts this past week, gigantic numbers for football. They took a little bit of a hit during the pandemic. There were no crowds. People were, their minds were elsewhere. But if you look back, at 2019, the numbers now are eclipsing 2019. In fact, the opening night game, Dallas versus Tampa Bay, which was a great game, but it was bigger in total audience than 2015, which in an an environment where people are cutting the cord, there are fewer television viewers in general, to generate those kinds of ratings from uh, anything is super impressive. And it just shows that the NFL is really the last big place to aggregate an audience in television. Yeah, it's just it's just still like I was in I was traveling in South Carolina when that game was on visiting um, my grandma and you know I was staying at a hotel in Greenville, South Carolina, and there were at this newish hotel in Greenville. Obviously, South Carolina's football country, but college football. But you know, every TV and every bar in the restaurant is tuned on to you know Cowboys Bucks, and it's just. It is still the, the, the country's gathering place. Um, In a place where, you know, a generation ago, maybe award shows would have had the same effect, but not yeah. now. Or even 10 years ago, even 10 years ago or yeah, five years not ago. not now. I, I mean, yeah. they used to say that, that the Oscars was the Super Bowl for women, and it's just not anymore. It's really not. Are you a, you're a Rams fan, right? I'm actually not. I, I'm, I grew up in Orange County, so you'd think I'd be a Rams fan. But uh, I actually I like the Packers just because I'm an Aaron Rodgers fan. I, I went to Berkeley, so my college allegiances are to Cal football, and he's like a hero of Cal football. Um, so I, I'm Packers, but I, I watch the Rams now cause, just because they're on in L.A. Yeah, well, we should go to a game at the stadium. It looks cool. All right, Matt. Thanks. Thank you. Coming up, talking to Tina Nguyen about Mr. Trump. You've probably heard a little bit about Puck, our new media company focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck is all about the inside conversation, the plot that only insiders know and only elite journalists have access to. Most importantly, we're built around the creators. I'm actually an owner of this business, and so is every journalist you're hearing today on this show. Thank you so much for your support, and we hope that you like what we're building. All right, humans, welcome back to The Powers That Be. We are joined by Tina Wynn, who is covering 
all things Trump and the future of the Republican Party for Puck. Tina's a veteran of Politico and Vanity Fair, in case you doubt her street cred. I'm so cool. <laughs> I'm the coolest kid in school. I'm the hottest chick in the game. I'm wearing the Puck name. Obviously. Yeah. So, Tina, you have a piece this week about the question that everyone in politics wants to know. Will Trump run again? Because no one has any attention span. We can't even cover the president who's in the White House. Um, But it's obviously a really important question because unlike previous presidential losers, you know, Al Gore, John McCain, Mitt Romney, Trump just lords over his party in a way that traditionally failed candidates do not, um, even one-term presidents. And what's also interesting and what you get out in the piece is traditionally, if a politician is thinking about running for president, they will do a lot of these traditional box checking things. They'll start a pack and they'll go to like chicken dinners in Iowa and they'll sort of hire fundraisers and staffers and sort of do these little kind of invisible primary things. And Trump is just continues to be non-traditional in every way. The greatest, latest example being on the anniversary of 9-11, when every former president was attending a solemn 20th anniversary memorial. Trump was at a boxing match with Don Jr. in Las Vegas. And so are we to look at something like that and think, this guy's not running again. He's not serious. Like, if he was really serious, he would be doing more serious things. He'd be dignified. Yeah. Or is this is this just another example of, like, just Trump just does things his own way and he knows he is the puppet master of the GOP and it kind of doesn't matter what people think of him. He's just going to do what he wants. I mean, do you remember in late 2016, early 2017, where there was a huge discussion over, oh, now that Trump is going to be president, maybe he'll start acting more presidential. Uh, And that just never happened. Yeah. (laughs) Like he's just going in there, hawking things, promoting stuff, like bringing McDonald's in for a... Clemson. (laughs) Yes, to celebrate football players winning stuff. Uh, Like, he never was presidential. There was never a moment where he fully was like, I shall cast aside all of these frivolous things and commit myself to public service. So why do you think that's going to happen now? I mean, yeah, he lost in 2020, but he also lost with 74 million votes. Like, that's a record for even people who win. Biden won by, I think, what, 87, 84? But people who came out to vote for Donald Trump in the middle of a pandemic because they didn't believe in mail-in voting, 74 million people, dude. Despite what Trump did during his presidency, despite, like, him, you know, trampling all over what a president should be and the dignity of the office and still being popular— He can still do that, even if he's not president. This time, he's just not going to have that many people on his case, if that makes any sense at all. And, like, honestly, it's sort of a thing that his base admires about him. Like, when he walked into the Hard Rock Casino, people in there were chanting, we want Trump. It's not like, like, they'd be happy if he ran for president. They'd be happy if he was a boxing commentator forever. They'd be happy if he, you know, signed a contract with Triller to punch people. Yeah, he has like permeated the culture in such a way, on the right at least, that people are just very loyal, even if he's not around. I mean, I and I'm an LSU football fan, and I had friends at the game this weekend in Baton Rouge, and like there were just LSU students chanting, 
fuck Biden, fuck Biden at a certain point of the game, like just randomly, like that just isn't something that would have happened. In other words, like Trump might not be on Twitter. He might not be on cable news every day in the way that he was. But, you know, outside of the field of view of official Washington and polite liberal center left company and the media, he still exists out there in such a strong way. And, and one thing I really liked about your reporting is you didn't just talk to like the traditional Republican strategist who has a take on whether he'll do well in New Hampshire. Like you talk to these sort of griftery, like like scam packy type conservatives who actually hold a lot of power, like the kind of activists on the on the grassroots level who are extremely loyal to Trump. And like, is there any sign among that side of the kind of MAGA Republican apparatus that the appetite for him is waning? Like, are they like, no, we're really into Nikki Haley now. (laughs) There is no way they will ever be into Nikki Haley. (laughs) Um, And I mean, Ron DeSantis, I think he might have the best chance of countering them. At the same time, I don't know whether the appetite is for someone who can better execute the MAGA agenda or just for Donald Trump himself. Uh, And that's why I think DeSantis may have some chance at trying to take the Trumpian mantle, but he will have to fight for it. And I don't know how well he can stand up next to a fully pissed off Donald Trump. Because, you know, that was what happened in 2016 when all of these Republicans did start trying to take the Trump playbook and turn it against him. Like, oh, look at me. I'm like saying insults on the debate stage. Yeah. Trump has little hands. Yeah. Trump has little hands. Trump is like a flanderer. And then he just came in with the kill. Who knows what, like, Ron DeSantis' kill point is, but I'm sure Trump can find it. I'm 100% certain that he's sitting in Mar-a-Lago just, like, churning through his brain trying to figure out the best way to insult Ron DeSantis if it had to come to that. I don't know if Ron knows how to push back against that. I wouldn't count about him immediately, but I think he, I don't know. I think that's his biggest challenge if he were to go up against Trump. So next year, like in the midterms, you know, a test of Trump's influence will be the power of his endorsements. Uh, There's going to be Republican primaries in Senate, House, governor's races all over the country. Is his endorsement, even if it's coming via email and not Twitter these days, still something that can propel a Republican candidate to a nomination? Or is it is it questionable depending on what the race is? Because he's he's made some endorsements that haven't panned out. Mm. Uh, oh, that's a tough question. Like, it depends on where he's placing these endorsements, because I think we've learned that if he places an endorsement in the wrong area or a place that, like, a Trumpian person will never win, that person will never win, and the seat will go either to someone who is a rhino in <laughs> MAGA estimation or a Democrat. Like, look what happened in California this week. Trump endorsed Larry Elder. All of the MAGA energy went towards a Larry Elder governorship and Gavin Newsom, I think smartly and rightly was just like, we're not going to make this election about me. We're going to make this about, do we want Larry Elder as governor? And if you just say that in California, I think everyone's going to be like, nope, 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 nope. We're not, no, we're not doing that. If there's any lesson to pull from the Republican side of the recall here, it's like Elder won, I think like 45% of the vote, like he consolidated it that mm-hmm. vote in a huge way in part because he had Trump's support and and he 
you know, had all of the MAGA dog whistles. And then not just the MAGA dog whistles, but like also the love of MAGA media, which yeah, is exactly. its own institution. We can talk about that. at some Yeah. Point. Yeah. No, he was I mean, he was constantly on Fox and, and beyond, you know, beyond Fox. But there there was a candidate also in the, in the running named Kevin Faulkner, who used to be the mayor of San Diego. He was like a Mitt Romney guy. If there was anyone on the Republican side who sort of typified the old country club Republican type, it was him. And he got 4% of the vote. Like, it's just like there is no appetite in a Republican primary at this point for anyone who doesn't do the MAGA box checking. That to me, again, like it, it, it makes the presidential primary, which will begin about, you know, 18 months. Uh, <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> and, and in part, here's another question I had for you. Like, there are, there are these names that get mentioned in stories like yours, these potential 2024 Republicans like Tom Cotton and Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis and Christy Nome and Mike Pompeo. You know, they, if they want to run for president, do have to start raising money and defining their brands and carving out positions, etc. Trump is one person who can literally afford to wait until two weeks before the Iowa caucuses or at least the filing deadline for some of these primaries and say, oh, yeah, I'm running. And so, like, how do these other Republicans deal with the fact that Trump can wait until the very last minute at the end of like 2023 or even 2024 and then he can come in and just blow up their whole plan? It's awkward. It's so (laughs) awkward. I think their hope was that Trump wasn't going to pay attention and kind of let them do their own thing. But Trump is starting to saber rattle for like, I don't think he likes the idea of anyone thinking or even entertaining the idea that he could go up against them. Is there any friction between him and DeSantis? Like, do they? Reportedly, yes. From the people I talked to in Florida, uh, no one really wants to get in the middle of that beef. It's very awkward. And if you look at the kind of reporting that's coming out between Mar-a-Lago and I guess the rest of Florida, mm-hmm. you will hear things like, oh, Trump fucking hates DeSantis. Trump will sort of hint in interviews that like DeSantis would be nowhere without him. DeSantis is being sort of tepid about how great Donald Trump is and he's doing his own thing. But I really like reading between the lines when he releases his statements in his pack. And one of them recently was just a screenshot of an Emerson poll showing who would you vote for in a Republican primary? And Trump gets like 67% of the vote and everyone gets less than 10%. It's sort of a like, Hey, just a reminder guys. Yeah. I find his press releases these days are a bit more subtle than his Twitter ever was, but it's kind of, it's still kind of funny. Uh, Okay, so this is the last thing I want to ask you. Chris Christie (laughs) came out this week with some attendant media coverage and in the mainstream press giving a speech at the Reagan Library about the Republican Party lost its way. Oh, man, Um, what a good like 20. What a good 2010 move. Seriously, it just felt it felt like I literally sent that to my friends, what you just said. I was like, this story is not from 2014. It is from today and it's just like in what world is chris christie going to you know carve a path forward for the republican party after trump in part because he was one of the biggest first establishment quote-unquote endorsers of trump 
Remember, he stood behind him um, after the New Hampshire primary. Oh, that was hilarious. Whether or not Chris Christie runs for president, like for the Republican nomination, I mean, it just really felt like a retread of the kind of like Mitt Romney speeches from back in the day or the Jeb Bush speeches, even Rick Perry before they all went all in on Trump saying like, this is a perversion of the Republican Party. We've got to do something different. Like, who's the audience for that? I don't know. I truly <laughs> don't know. Probably ABC This a, Week panel? Yeah. I would say a bunch of pearl-clutching donors behind the scenes who are like, oh, I can't believe the party has gone this way, which definitely still exists. But uh, does that actually translate into votes? Good luck. Yeah, I, I just I just don't I just don't see it. Um there's, it's probably lucrative. It's probably for the, you know, people who care about things that happen at the Reagan Library, which is mm-hmm. not exactly a MAGA stomping ground ever. Um, but yeah, that's like the William F. Buckley crowd. Yeah. I mean, if there's one world that Christie's always craved validation, it's it's in that like sort of elite world. I mean, sort of like John Huntsman um, and we'll do where wherever the center of gravity of you know, polite uh, company, polite company, polite like, moneyed company, right? Wherever the opinions and whims of polite moneyed company go is where someone like he will go. But yeah, just that just really hit me like a time capsule. I was like, wow, we still cover politics this way. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this guy's taking steps to maybe put his toes in the water for 2024. It just was like, I used to write that stuff for CNN like 10 years ago. Um, oh, yeah, same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every outlet I've ever worked at. Yeah, times have changed. All right, Tina, thank you so much. I'm glad we're working together. It's going to be so much fun, dude. I'm so excited. So much fun. We're going to we're gonna have the most fun of anyone in, in the news. All right, coming up, we have Dylan Byers, Puck's newest hire. He's going to join me to talk about the media. Hey, it's me, Peter Hamby, again. Thanks for listening to the inaugural episode of The Powers That Be, our new podcast from Puck. If you like what you're hearing, please support us by subscribing at puck.news. That's www.puck.news. If you're logging on to the information superhighway for the first time, $100 a year to know what the pros are talking about and to support journalists like us. Again, please go to puck.news. All right. Joining me now is Puck's newest celebrated hire. Uh, man of high collars and wonderful <laughs> hair and a good beard, <laughs> Dylan Byers, someone who, when we were in Washington together, was also willing to unbutton the 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 button down shirt two buttons instead of one button. I always respected yeah. that. <laughs> um, Dylan, I know you, I know you you have uh, you're you're dropping a piece as we speak as you listen uh, about why you joined Puck. But real quick, why? Why did you join Puck? You were at NBC News. You've been at BuzzFeed. You've been at Politico. You've been all over the media. Why Puck now? Well, first of all, let me say it's a a hell of a pleasure to be on the same team with you. Thank you. I've admired your work for a long time and felt like in some regards, if not all, we were kindred spirits. It's a really good question. You know, I think that I think and my guess is this is your experience, too, is that the bigger and more established a news organization you work for the harder it is to actually just say what you know, say it in plain English, be direct with your readers. It's not just that 
there are standards and and things like that, or that you know organizations like NBC or CNN want to uphold their integrity. But I think to a certain extent, they're very cautious. I don't begrudge them that. I don't begrudge them having to be cautious and maintain a certain sense of faux impartiality. But I also just think they're interested in a different conversation. I think they're trying to create news for a very broad audience. And to do that, you often need to tell a very reductive version of the truth. And the problem is, is that when you are too reductive and you, you are, are, are trying to make things too palatable for too many people, you actually sort of end up steering away from the truth. The truth is often nuanced. It requires a great deal of context. And, and for me, if I'm telling a story, if I'm what I've been covering for a decade, if covering the media business and the media industry, you got to you got to get into it. And you got to know the players and you have to go beyond really simple headlines to be able to tell that story. And the ambition of Puck, you know, covering the four corners of power, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, Washington is so in line with that with that story I've been trying to tell for almost a decade. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if you are a um, advertising supported news or media organization at this point in the attention economy you have two choices. One, you try to appeal to as many people as possible, the kind of driest kind of commodity news. Right. And that can be to what you described, kind of reductive sometimes. Or you just become louder and more partisan and more flamboyant and provocative. And, and we've seen that a little bit with CNN, our former employer, but also definitely like partisan news sources and new organizations that have popped up just in the last like two, three, four, five years that aim to just get attention for clicks. And I think our goal in part as a subscriber business is to go a little more niche to the people who want to look under the hood of those kinds of stories that they hear in the mainstream press every day. I, look, I think all journalists, no matter what they're covering, want, ideally want to try and do two things. They want to be right and they want to be interesting. And I think that I, I think the story that you get in mass media isn't really interesting to the people who are actually involved in these industries, who actually understand the way the world of media, of technology, of entertainment work. And I think if you're, even if you're not in those worlds, but, but you're smart enough to care about what's actually happening, who's making the decisions about how we interact with the world, interpret the world, interpret the news, I think you want to get a, real, a deeper knowledge of, of how that world works than some of the mass media organizations can give you. Yeah, and like I think the reporters at Puck, we all agree there's a conversation that we all have together that sort of insiders in all these different industries have that isn't showing up in the in the copy that isn't showing up on yeah, air. Well, and, this is, yeah. I mean this this is true like this is and this is in my my opening salvo which will be published sometime this week about why I joined this is so frustrating. There are so many journalists who really aren't terribly qualified to cover the worlds that they do, the beats that they do. But if you work hard enough and you develop the sources, you get to a place where you actually do have a little bit of authority to cover these worlds. And then the problem becomes you actually don't feel like you can say everything that you know. And what ends up happening is there's a conversation. There are two versions of a story. 
There's the story that I publish or you publish or someone at the New York Times or, or the Washington Post or CNN, whatever, co- publishes. And that's an interesting enough story. But then there's the really juicy stuff that they talk about after they've published the story among each other with their sources, among the people who are in the know. And it seems to me like we're doing a great disservice to ourselves, a great disservice to our readers, if we can't just bring those readers into the conversation, invite them to dinner, invite them to drinks, and have a real honest conversation, and not be shy about saying how we feel about what we know as well, and providing like some real honest perspective that some for some reason for so long, I and I know many of my colleagues have felt like we can't actually say because... You know, we we're, I don't know why we're afraid that the ears of our readers are too sensitive because the people we work for have a fear of being too interesting. I don't know what it is, but I, you know, I feel I just feel like I've gotten to a point in my career where where if I'm not telling you what I actually know and how I what I actually think is going on in plain English, I don't really understand what the point is. <laughs> I love that. Well, that gets me to what I want to talk to you about is um, I actually wrote a piece this week about Joe Biden and the it's a great piece, the new thank you, the the sort of post Afghanistan received wisdom that his whole presidency is now in trouble, um, in part because he's running out of time <laughs> to get his domestic agenda through before the midterms, in part because he, you know, has these sort of outside events, anything from Hurricane Ida to Afghanistan to wildfires that he's got to deal with, Afghan refugees, all of these things are on his plate, The, you know, whether to raise the debt ceiling. And it's all happening right now. And that right. is on top of the fact that his approval ratings are now underwater. And so I started writing this piece and I didn't intend to write a media piece, but it became partly a media piece because having worked in the waters of Washington media for 10 years before leaving CNN to join Snapchat, just have an understanding of how these narratives get made and how reporters and editors think and also the tempo of a, of a presidency and how it just sort of ebbs and flows. Um, and so the hair on fire coverage of Biden might be dead in the water after eight months <laughs> of being president you know, it just struck me as like yet another example of the press congealing around a narrative. And, you know, when a politician is down, the coverage is down. And then if he crawls his way back up, then there's a comeback story. But yeah, I mean, I, I just, you know, you were covering sort of political media, not necessarily politicians when you were in D.C., but, you know, as an observer of it over time, what is your opinion of that? Like, how how do these narratives get made in, in political media about political candidates and, and, and politicians. Well, look, I mean, the media, it's every, everyone who I cover, whether it's news media or folks in Silicon Valley or Hollywood, everyone is in the engagement business. The news industry in DC specifically is in the engagement business because everyone, cable news goes from 6 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day. Most news organizations are trying to churn out two to three newsletters and 10 to 20 to 40 articles a day. And they have to have something to say. And sometimes there isn't something to say. (laughs) Sometimes there's something to say, but it's nuanced 
or maybe it's just not that interesting. That's not great for the business of DC media. The business of DC media relies on keeping people engaged. And so it has to convince you that the stakes are high all the time. You and I and our colleagues talk about this a lot. It's one of the reasons that Donald Trump was so good for the news industry is the stakes were kind of high a lot. And the, you know, there, there was a lot to be outraged about. If you're not among that small group of really great political reporters who can actually peel back the curtain on new developments about what's going on or how, how things are being thought about inside the White House, then you don't really have a lot you can do except say, Joe Biden's ass is on the line. Or, you know, every it's all to play for. Next several weeks are going to determine whether or not he's a great president or a failed president. And as you point out in your piece, you don't actually know. You don't know. You don't know how circumstances are going to change. You don't know how the will of the people are going to change. You don't know that, that you know, in this industry, there's like the October surprise that happens in campaigns. There are surprises that happen all the time. Or there are things that just don't happen and, and public attention peters out. And like you said, every Monday morning, we hit the reset on who's up and who's down. I think it's really hard because as a journalist, you are always trying to prove your worth. You are always trying to demonstrate that you have something to say. And the, the hardest and most admirable thing you can do sometimes is say what you said in your piece, which is, I don't know. Wait and see. <laughs> yeah, it's the absolutism of the commentariat that, that aggravates me the most. Like if you care about history like I do, if you've covered even more than two election cycles or another president, you just understand that it's impossible to predict the future, that the boundaries that the Washington press puts around how politics is supposed to work are, are rarely boundaries at all, you know? And that's sort of why everyone was so surprised, not just that Trump won, but also that like Obama beat Hillary back in 08 or that Bernie was, you know, came out of nowhere in 2016. It's just, it's a, it is um, antithetical to how the hive mind is, built to think to write something complex and nuanced. But to your point, there are economic imperatives at play here, which is the food fights and the absolutism and the culture of hot takes drives engagement. And that becomes the incentive structure. Think about it. If you're Jeff Zucker at CNN or Rashida Jones at MSNBC, are you going to hire the contributor who says, you know, the truth is, I don't know what's going to happen and no one knows what's going to happen. <laughs> or are you going to hire the contributor who's like, Biden's toast? <laughs> and by the way, people have a really easy way of forgetting when people are wrong. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I think there used to be a time in history where if someone went out and, and sort of made a prophecy and it didn't come true, they probably would have hanged that person. And now it's like you can go out and you can say something dramatic and incendiary and if you're wrong, people sort of forget and let it slide. But <laughs> there was a great election night. I don't forget if it was 2012 or 2016, where Anderson Cooper was moderating a conversation with a panel of, you know, 60 people or something. And they were all sort of <laughs> pontificating and pre-gaming and doing, you know what I mean, doing the, the, the Saturday morning, Sunday morning thing before a football game. And then at the end of it, he was like, well, you know, the truth is we just don't know what's actually going to happen. And it was like, great, why did we watch, you know, what were we watching for the, why, why did we watch this pregame coverage? But that, that is the incentive of obviously of, of cable news. And it's really the incentive of every publication because 
again, we're, we're living in a time now where they feel like they have to refresh the homepage all the time. They have to have new newsletters to send out, new tweets to send out, new things to say. And you got to feed the beast. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes there's nothing to feed it. Yeah, I just one thing I'm preoccupied by is that, you know, I think journalists in Washington and elsewhere, but journalists who cover politics present themselves as dispassionate observers of these sometimes sinister, craven leaders or whatever, or just or just leaders, whatever. And in fact, especially in Washington, people in the media are participants in the process. They are remoras swimming on the back of these politicians. It is a completely incestuous, um, I don't want to use the word game uh, because, you know, after Trump, like politics isn't a game, but there are career incentives to getting attention in Washington that apply to the media as well as, as to politicians. And that's why you would see like Jim Acosta in the briefing room, like peacocking with the press secretary, like it's pro wrestling, like it's a win-win for both parties involved and it gets you book deals and careers. And again, there are good journalists and there are sloppy journalists, but one, I just think, you know, this is one reason this podcast is called the powers that be like David Halberstam wrote about how people in media control the levers of power in a way that they didn't really present in the pages of their magazines and newspapers and on television. And that's an extremely important way to look at politics and not enough politics is covered with the, you know, sensibility that the media is a participant in this process as much as an observer of it. Right. And, and there's, you're, you're, it's not a game, but there is a sense in which everyone who is playing the game of politics or in the media surrounding politics, understands that there are kind of ways to game the narrative, ways to game the conventional wisdom. And, you know, when all else fails, you go out and you do the Jim Acosta thing of just grandstanding, which is, to me, has got to be the laziest, the laziest form of journalism is to just pick an easy target and make yourself out to be the hero and I don't just, that's not just a political thing. You see it in, I see it all the time in, in Silicon Valley, people who go after tech executives. And it's like, if you're just, if you're just shouting about things they're doing wrong, you know, without really getting into the nitty gritty of why they're doing those things or the context in which that's happening or, or what's driving their, their decisions. I mean, it, it's, it just strikes me as a failure of journalism. Well, hopefully we can use this <laughs> podcast to <laughs> talk about some positive elements of journalism at some point. Before I let you go, yeah, um, you know, just, you know, you were on a little bit of a summer vacation and sort of coming back. Like what what is your perspective to the extent you have one looking back on how the Washington press covered Trump versus, you know, what's happening right now? Do you have any insights into why the coverage around Biden is is negative? I mean, is it deserved? What like what's what's going on? Well, look, I mean, like you said, I've been on an island for six weeks, so I don't you know, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here. And this is an area where I'm really not an authority. But I think what you hit at in your piece is that there is a certain bit of a honeymoon period and then something needs to change. And that's not to say, you know, look, things happen. Biden has had mishaps. There, there are a lot of things that have there, there are reasons why his approval rating is lower than it is. But I do think at a certain point, the media 
broadly speaking, has to find a new way to talk about what's happening and a new angle on the subject they're covering. And where Biden is at relative to the last presidency we just lived through, it doesn't matter that those are two different things because everything sort of exists in the vacuum of the current administration. It's how you have something where you can live in a world where you know, the, the media is sort of losing its mind over Obama wearing a tan suit. And then you move into a Trump administration and, and, and all of that sort of seems like a quaint, distant memory. I think there are going to be times in, in a presidency where the president is going to get hit harder than they probably deserve to get hit. And I think there are times, certainly in those honeymoon periods right after they come into office, where they're probably getting more praise than they actually deserve. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I do, I do think Trump opened up. It made a lot of reporters. This doesn't apply to like investigative reporters necessarily, but maybe more beat reporters that, you know, the president should be covered with a lot more skepticism and, and less inherent trust than maybe the press covered previous presidents. You know that in other words, that before Trump presidents oftentimes got the benefit of the doubt on certain things. And under Trump, they realized that shouldn't be the case. And then you come into the Biden era and, you know, that shouldn't be true with Biden either. But at the same time, is this person as, you know, ill-equipped and, and sinister as the previous guy? No. <laughs> so right. maybe he shouldn't be covered with such, you know, oppositional hostility. I don't, I don't know. All right, cool. Thank you, Dylan, for joining us. Looking forward to having you back on. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again for listening to this first episode of The Powers That Be. Special thanks to Eric Johnson and LightningPod.fm for all their support. Thanks to Liz Goff and Ben Landy. And we'll be back next week with another episode of The Powers That Be.